Hey everybody, it's Ron from the Nerd Life Crisis Podcast Network, here to talk to you today about SpinWiz Comics. SpinWizComics.com is an indie comics discovery platform. It's designed to help comic book readers find new content, with over 60 publishers and over 400 different comic titles to choose from, and growing every week. Most of the content right now is free to read, but there are options available to purchase PDFs and support creators you read the most. And right now, as part of the promotion, IB Comics is offering the first four issues of Grace, free to read. And for all you music fans out there, the first 28 pages of Legba's Juke Joint, Volume 1. You can read all of these for free at spinwizcomics.com. So if you're a content creator out there, check it out. It's a no-hassle platform whose core goal is to help with awareness, to essentially take your comic book and put it out there for new readers. It's as easy as uploading a couple of PDFs, toss them into a Dropbox or Google, and within a day, your stuff will be online and available for purchase or for new readers to check out. SpinWizComics.com. Check it out today. Welcome to Fix It in the Mix, the podcast about the real music business. I'm your host, of course, Chris Thayer. Today I'm sitting down with musician and engineer guru Kelly McGuire. We're here in the beautiful Inland Blue Studios. Uh, welcome, my friend, and thanks for coming in. Oh, this is great. Thanks uh, for having me. I think this will be a lot of fun, and uh, you know, if, if people can kind of hear a very different perspective about uh, the business, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so... I always like to start out uh, because I find this like the most fascinating about anything uh, dealing with people and, and how they get, um, well, basically, how did you get started in music? Like, usually it sucks people in and it's a lot of times it's a uh, like an instant thing, like the light clicks on and suddenly this is what I have to do. Uh, did you have a, a moment like that at all or? I was the youngest of uh, four kids in the family. They, there was a lot of music going on with uh, older brothers and sisters and so I got definitely hooked into the music, and I found that I had a, a natural ability to sing. I had pretty good rhythm, but nothing really clicked in until I found a guitar in the closet that was given to my dad for, I think, a Christmas gift. Jeez, I wish. And he didn't play it. He was busy. He was a automobile photographer. He was gone a lot. So hmm. I would sneak it out, and I started noodling with it, and I found I had a little bit of aptitude to try to make it work and right. and even tune it. And I didn't even know what I was doing, but I, I, I kind of got hooked into the guitar there. Uh, that's That was my start. Do, do you remember what kind of guitar it was? It was an Epiphone Granada. I still have it. Epiphone? An Epiphone, huh. which was made in Michigan, I think Kalamazoo. I didn't know that. I didn't know they uh, they were actually built in Michigan. Yeah, built in Michigan, American-made. It was a nice sunburst kind of F-hole with one pickup on it. Uh, and it had a Harmony amp that had like the two-prong you know, socket on it That's and funny. a nice clean sound. And and I would sneak that stuff out and play and, you know, put it back because I thought, right. you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Right? right, right. Most kids are like sneaking in their dad's nudie magazines and yeah. you're sneaking in the guitar. Uh, now, what happened to it? Is it still? I still have the guitar. It's in my studio. What? It That's turns crazy. out to be not a great 
guitar well, because not. it's um, it's really beautiful, but I it, it doesn't really play in tune. Although oh. I've, I've used it on a couple things, so I just kind of keep it to remind me of where right where it comes from. I I remember the first guitar I had. It was a hollow body, and uh, impossible to play. I mean, you're talking like at least three quarters of an inch off the fretboard yeah. the strings were yeah. it's like there's no way i'm going to learn to play on this thing and that lasted for a, maybe a month or two and then i was like i got to get something else um but yeah i mean if, if i were to pick that up now i probably would throw it in the fire i, I yeah but i think that's important it's you important because you, you shouldn't really have something know. good and you don't really know what you're actually looking for you don't know that you're maybe fighting the guitar and that your fingers hurt and you're trying to figure right. out how to make a chord so right it's all right. part of it no, I think that's uh, that, very true. Um, and I, I tell, you know, like I have students that come in with their guitars. It's like, it's kind of hard to play. I'm like, that's good. That means you're going to have to work for it. And then when you get something that's a little bit nicer, uh, the transition is going to be super easy. And, and it's going to be a, a boost to a new level for them. Yeah, you start out with a beautiful Stratocaster. Right. Where do you go? You know? Yeah, I hate to sound like, you know, well, we used to, you know, walk to school for 50 no, miles No, but there's in the truth snow, in that. The guitar equivalent. You know? <laughs> it's absolutely true. So, did you get that guitar, or was did, you know was it held back, and you ended up getting your own guitar? Uh, I would sneak it out f over the course. I started. I think I found it at thirteen. So I would sneak okay. it out it's over like the course of like a year and a half, and it actually got pretty good. Like I could play a couple songs and a couple things on the radio, and I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I invented the D chord. Right, right. You know, like, that's wow, funny. that's really cool. You hit these three strings, it sounds pretty nice. No books, no teacher. So you just fooled around. Like, yeah. Like, legitimately just plunked away at it. I had an ear. You know, I had an crazy. ear in rhythm, so I had a couple tools that, that helped. Just no skill, no, you know, well, no fingers. But that comes. I mean, and for most people, I think they would agree that there's there's a moment where you're fighting with that instrument, especially guitar players. Like anybody who wants to start guitar, they fight with it until that moment where it just sort of happens and it works. And then, you you know, the fingers still hurt, but it's not quite as bad. Yeah, um, your, your brain kind of gets wired after a while to what... Yeah to what's going on you know guitar is hard because you get a keyboard and you hit a c a c comes out right no matter how you hit it right that is not the case with a guitar right fret noise uh you bend it it's out of tune i mean the, right i mean it's it's not quite yeah. violin status but it's definitely uh right it's not a fretless little, yeah yeah it's a it's a little less forgiving than like a, a electronic keyboard or something um, so is that what made you want to play music or is there like a moment like for me? And I come back to this a lot. It was hearing, um, kiss alive, the, the big drum solo and all the people screaming and vibing off of this one dude playing. And I was like, wow, that's freaking awesome. I want to do that. You know, for me, that was that moment. Now, if I look back on it, like I freaking can't stand that band, but that moment resonated with me. It's uh, funny because that was the first concert I saw. But really, uh, Kiss and Aerosmith in Detroit. Oh wow! But that wasn't the like a little pivot for me. Oh okay. The catalyst was seeing uh, my cousin had kind of a garage band, and they played on our backs. We had a screened-in porch, kind of a thing in the right. Midwest. They played on the screened-in porch, and I I watched them, and my jaw was probably on the on the floor because I I was just 
absorbing everything. The Fender amps, it was loud. It was a little bit scary. Right. I didn't even know what they had for a PA or anything, but they were singing and it was coming out. And huh? Do you I remember, remember how they old played you were? Gloria. G L O R I Gloria. That's the only thing I remember. I don't know, 13 something, 14. Really? So you were that old? I was probably more like 12, probably. Okay. I'd have to look at when the Gloria came out. But. Right, right. Now, the ironic thing here is, you know, I, my cousin played guitar and, you know, I saw him playing in the garage and I thought that was cool. And if he can do it, I can do it. Your cousin isn't just like my cousin. Who, who's your cousin for the people that don't know? Well, my, my cousin started playing music around Detroit and he got hooked up with Bob Seeger. As a young teenager, and Bob took him under his wing. That's crazy. My cousin's Glenn Fry, who <laughs> ended even up more bizarre. You know, he uh, like talk about a cousin inspiring the other cousin, and it turns out to be that guy. What's funny is uh, I always joke that um, everything I've done in music, like play concerts and record and do albums, I would in, in a typical family, I would be a rock star, except right. that I got Glenn Fry's my friggin' cousin, right? <laughs> It's like, oh, well, Kelly's in a band, too. Yeah, he's, he can play music, too. Yeah, he's, he does I mean, it, he ain't too. Glenn, but, you know, he does his own thing. He's not the best-selling uh, band of all time. <laughs> of all time. <laughs> well, you know, it's not the same, you know. So he was an influence. Uh, he well, was yeah. in bands around Detroit. He, he got his first session with Bob Seger. So we heard Ramblin' Gamblin' Man wow. on the radio, and, and that's uh, Glenn's probably 17 singing backup. That's crazy. And it's on the radio, so we were freaking out. Like, that's that's our cousin's voice on the radio. That's like that moment in that thing you do where the yeah. family's like flipping out and they all are running around. That's like that's him. Yeah. That's so that was crazy. that was cool. And then he went to California, like hitchhiked to California with a guitar and a little else. Huh. And made another album. So we actually had a physical album. It wasn't Eagles then. It was Bob Seger, or was no, it? it, it was, was uh, uh, J.D. Souther, who was oh, one okay. of the writers of, for, of Eagles hits. But they hooked up for. Uh, they were called Long Branch Penny Whistle. Okay. And they got signed to a little tiny label, but not a great name. No. <laughs> I don't know who was Long Branch and who was Penny Whistle <laughs> and just, how that works, but oh. I got the album at home and it was like Gee. a big thing. So because it sounded like an album, this was. His wow. name was on there, and back when you read the you know mm -hmm. albums and stuff, so it started there. And then when the Eagles kind of got going, and he was on the Helen Reddy show playing a black Les Paul singing, you know, "Take It Easy." Right. I was like, "That's cool," and I started playing well, more. Yeah. I started playing more guitar and trying to figure out, you know, I couldn't play "Witchy Woman." It was like over my head. Right. That yeah, was, you know, That's a big, over a lot of people's heads still, you know. So that was that was a big thing in in our family. No, that's huge. That's huge. And it's it's so much more um like profound that you know everybody has a moment like that. It's more, even more profound that it's your, you know, a relative. Um and I yeah, maybe it's not. I don't know. But to me that just that just screams like of course you play music, you know, with with that sort of experience. I think in your com life. what comes along with that is also, um, you know, he's a big influence, and I I did a lot of things in kind of parallel to what he did, and listened to the records and everything. But uh, you're also you're not necessarily in the shadow. No, but. but 
But it's kind of like sometimes people will look at you like, oh, your cousin's an Eagles. Why isn't he hooked you up? Why aren't you on stage with him? Why are you know? I got to admit, I have thought that many times. Um, I get that and I understand it. And uh, yeah, I don't understand it. I don't understand it's, why it's complicated. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess I, I know you for a lot of years and I know that you are the kind of guy that if you have a bit of success, you like to pay it down to somebody that maybe doesn't have that same amount of success. Um, because that's what you do. You pay it forward, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's, and um, not everybody does that. I don't know that I consciously do that, but I, but you do, you know where you were. Right. And you know that, uh, you know, somebody needs a little bit of something and whatever I could do, depending on what kind of, uh, level of food chain i was on right so you're helping somebody maybe you know slightly down the food chain right that's right well i mean i recorded the first big papa records plural either in your studio or at a gig that you helped arrange and that you know was huge because none of my limited success would have come about uh, at least with that project had that not happened um and I, I never forget that. And I try and pay that forward to, you know, kids that are coming up or whatever. It's, it's different now. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I feel lucky that I came through. I caught the recording bug shortly after the guitar bug. And I wasn't in bands or anything. So I feel lucky that it came through the era of like a cassette four track. I was just going to ask, like, what to, did you use? Uh, uh, what I used to start with was literally two cassette players, players wow. and I would record into one, and I'd make that hit that with play, right. put the other one in record. <laughs> some some good quality stuff right there. So, yeah, the song is you know <laughs> song ends up being named Tape Hiss at the right, end. Of, right, but it's, that was it sounds like the telephone uh, plug-in. But when you you know, you hear you know, I had two guitar parts because right. I could sing and play guitar. And it's like, that's amazing. I harmonized with myself, caught the bug. Right. Had to have a cassette four track saved up. I was working at a pizza place, saved up all my money so I could buy one. And it was really expensive back then. Well, yeah. Um, We're talking I, 1980. I yeah. I had one too. And, you know, I don't know about you. Well, you've probably experienced this when you had the cassette four track and you were trying to do a song. The format made you get down to what are the building blocks right. of my song? Because right. I literally have four things. Right. What four things am I going to do? Nowadays, the kids, even on their phones and stuff. Oh, yeah. Unlimited tracks. I'll do, you know, I'll do six vocals and I'll do this stuff. And mm -hmm. I kind of like that we came from that that four track thing. So I would do drums on one bass, a guitar and I'd sing. Now you didn't do live drums. You did drum machine or, uh, I did a lot of weird things because stuff wasn't around. Right. I took drums in junior high and high school, like officially learn how to play. Right. Drums. Were you like the school band or was it just less? Yeah. The jazz band and concert band. See, I, I, I was in junior high and of course you want to be in the band, but I don't want to be the dude carrying around the tuba or something. Or the, so it's, you know, Tom yeah. Toms. Or yeah. Something. So I'm going to be the snare drummer, you know? Yeah. Um, I really wanted to play the drum set, but they, once they get you in there, it's like, oh yeah, we don't have a drum set. This is, you know, concert band. 
It's like, well, I feel ripped off now. I wanted to play drums, you know. Yeah, drums were cool. Drums were super cool. And, and not, again, that's that's what inspired me to want to play was hearing that big drum solo in oh. front of 30,000 people. And when you play the drums, there's something that happens. I always say, you know, when you don't know what you're doing, when you're playing the drums, it's not noise. The way I started, I would hit the wall for a kick drum and have a bottle of Tylenol. Dude, you, know? you were industrial before. There was I was making sounds because it, it's, I didn't have anything. That's I had amazing. a guitar, and I would tune it down and try to do a bass. The strings are flopping around or right. whatever. But those are my first demos that were kind of found items, you know, to, yeah. to make. No, that's brilliant. That's, and that's almost expected in music at this point, that you have some of those found sounds yeah. um, that everything isn't just a sample from from the internet, that you actually go out and, and create those things. I don't know if you saw the Billie Eilish uh, yeah, yeah. and her brother. Yeah. Like so many things in, in those songs are, are captured on their phones or whatever. Kind of the hybrid approach of the found sounds, digitizing them right quantizing it, them. yeah quantize that's that's really cool i like it i you know i i i'm not the biggest fan of the album but i am a huge fan of the production on yeah. that album i think that's for me that was the takeaway i think it's intriguing stuff because yeah. it's just um seat of the pants yeah you know kind of singing and barely eking out a vocal and i'm so close and it barely eking out <laughs> right. something um so, like, let's get to some nitty-gritty. What, what would you say, if you can, was your best gig ever? I know best that's a heavy gig. question because you've done that's like hard, you've thousands done, of you've gigs. That's hard because you've done a, a million gigs, and, and I don't know, maybe I've done a half million. But, yeah, you know, sometimes it's not the biggest gigs exactly. that are the coolest moments. Sometimes you're at a little place, it's packed, the band is into a groove right and your voice is working and your fingers are doing the right stuff and there's that little synergy like they get it the audience and they mm -hmm. give it back to you and it kind of grows into this like thing that's larger than the parts i don't know that i have you know <laughs> a particular gig there have been a lot that have been cool just down here in redlands at like the vault martini lounge i've yeah. had some amazing things and one a gig that stands out for a lot of reasons. Uh, over in Riverside, they used to have the De Anza Theater, and they had name mm -hmm. acts in there. And for some reason, um, somebody I'd worked with at a studio in Riverside, um, what was that called? Studio One, which is like the software. Right, but, right. Uh, Mike Overland had studio, and Nick Killian was the engineer there. And it's one thing led to another, and Bonnie Ray was playing at the De Anza. Wow. And Nick said, well, Kelly would be perfect. You ought to get him to open. That's cool. So they said, That's you huge. know. Yeah. And I was terrified, you know, because well, Bonnie yeah. Raitt was huge, and I was really into it. Mm -hmm. and, and they said, the other thing they said is, you got to play solo acoustic. We don't, we're not going to have a band. Oh, my God. And yes. that wasn't my bag. That, no pressure. That wasn't my bag. So it's his <laughs> voice and the guitar. And my guitar chops are like I have a good groove. They're kind of pedestrian, but to walk out there and you're oh, in no, the fishbowl. You're in the fishbowl. Oh yeah. You got one of those? Oh, I definitely have one. But but finish telling me about. It. So how did it go? So I was terrified, but I worked hard and I actually worked it out. So no matter how nervous I was, I kind of knew where I was going. Right. Roadmap. 
And I started finding my own personal voice, not singing, but my uh, kind of personality. Right. Because I always thought I was the least nervous when I was just myself, and I would be sarcastic, crack a little jokes, right. ask some people, you know, some things, and, and not try to be rock star or anything. Right. So I was just starting to discover that, and I, you know, go out there, and I do my set, and, you know, nice applause, and had the big sound, and... Mm-hmm. and Bonnie Raitt comes out and she, she doesn't even like say hello. She says, "How about that that Kelly McGuire? That guy's, he's oh, good. That's and awesome. That's what so a, rare. What a, what a soulful guy." And she's like doing that. So I was backstage and I was I flew oh, for yeah. oh, for yeah. two weeks after that. You know, so that was a, a big thing. No, that's huge, man. That's huge. I I've only had a couple um, headliners mention us as openers. Um, and, and it, the first one that ever did it was Coco Montoya. Uh, and there were a couple others. Um, but yeah, that for me, that's like as a headliner, that's something you gotta do. You gotta give love to that opener if they're, if they're good. Uh, maybe that's why I never heard it. Maybe they didn't think we were good. Um, but yeah, I, I took a, um, uh, a short like tour with, uh, Mike Park, Oso Ray, and we went up to Seattle, well, not Seattle. We went to uh, Oregon. We were going to go up to Seattle and we didn't make it. We went as far as Portland. Two guitars. We were playing. We weren't even playing together. We were just like taking, oh, okay. we would do a set and I would do a set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did a couple things together, but not like, not like a duo. And we would just go these little crappy gigs where nobody showed up and he just had had enough and he basically flew home. So I went on to uh, Modesto and, and my friend Sam lived there. So I'm like, I'm going to go see him. I pull into town. I play a little gig. And and uh, he says, oh, um, I have a friend over at the State Theater. This is like the Fox. Oh, and yeah, he says, yeah. um, they, they need an opener for tomorrow night. I know you're planning on driving home, um, but uh, Little River Band is playing. Ooh. And they wanted to know if, if you could open up just you and the guitar. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know. That's pretty huge. I went from playing to, like, three people that were all people I knew to playing for, you know, 1,500 or and whatever it was. Platinum act. You yes, know, 15, yes. Yeah. And, and they were super cool as well. Um, and, and that was one of those moments where it's like, oh, hey, about that kid? Uh, oh, they um, said something. Yeah, oh, yeah. See, that's a little things that you kind of learn later that you want to do for someone just you know saying someone's name yeah is, is not a hard thing to do no. but it's valuable so you don't really have a best gig is there a worst gig can oh, you think been of there have been a number of worst <laughs> it's hard gigs. to choose right yeah you know and being a sound man too because oh you yeah know, now so we haven't even touched on that a, yet. a different topic we can go to but uh worst gig yeah, there, there was just some gigs where you're not, you don't fit. I had a lot of those too. And you don't fit genre, and you don't fit, and you get off to a kind of a bad start. We had to, we had a really good band, um, and we were playing somewhere in San Bernardino, kind of a mucky muck place. And um, who's the comedian that does like the, uh, you know, you're a redneck when? Oh uh, yeah, Je- uh, Foxworthy. Foxworthy is that yeah. who that is? Yeah. So he's just getting going. And so he's opening for our band. Really? And he bombed. Oh, funny. So it's all these executives from the 7-Up whatever right. company. So we get up there. And yeah, I don't know that the redneck thing is going to jive with 
the seven a seven up uh yeah execs we get up there and one of the guys in the uh mike in the band has kind of had a sarcastic you know attitude the first thing he says as a joke <laughs> is like like to welcome everybody from sprite oh no and they hated us you know <laughs> after that it's over yeah they hated us <laughs> but you learn not to do that <laughs> So one time they hired me to, it was a lot of money. So I took it cause I would like to keep my car, right, you know, right. or keep the lights on. I took it, but I was solo acoustic wandering around, around in a mall. Wow. They said, go up to people and sing them a song. But it was, it kind of backfired. Cause you go up to people like, what are you doing? You know, yeah. WTF. Why are you, uh, <laughs> that's so weird. Like why? Why it was so uncomfortable, and it felt like the longest gig ever. And it was bet. three hours, and oh, it felt God. like six. And you have to like walk up to them, like the you're the, just wandering uh, around the band at the store. restaurant that goes up and plays at the table. Yeah, like you're at a Mexican restaurant, oh, but you're God. expected to, for them to come up and play mariachi music. Or even something. then, it's awkward and uncomfortable. It's like okay, we we get it. You can move to the next table. Now. That was that was horrendous. Yeah. Oh man, that's I think pretty you rough. Block out some, so I, I know I'm forgetting. You've uh, probably yeah. forgotten twenty. Oh of them. yeah, no, there there've definitely been some really horrible gigs. You got over a winner. Yeah, I mean a winner no, loser. I'm, I'm gonna leave this about you. Uh, um, I, I share too much on these things. Um, nobody wants to hear about me. They want to hear about what you got. Um, but you did mention the sound. Um, when did that start? Now, for those that don't know, Kelly is like a live sound guru. And I love to say anytime I refer him to somebody, it's like I've done a dozen shows with this guy and I've never heard feedback. Um, which is, oh, that's good. Well, I mean, but yeah. that's, that's kind of like, uh, and you would say, well, that's bare minimum, you know, yeah, that's pass fail. Right, right. Um, but well, I there's got in, a lot that fail. I got know. into live sound. I stumbled into it. You know, like you, we had a good band. We're playing at the local places, Lake Alice and Riverside and stuff. And I put together a pretty good sound system because I was working at a music store and I was able to test stuff out and learn about stuff. Had a nice sound system. So our band sounded pretty good. I had good ears for it and uh, was able to tune in the system pretty well. So I remember the first time somebody came up and said, uh, hey, your band sounds good. Can you bring your sound system out to run for our band? Right. I was like, I've never really thought about doing that. Say, well, we got 300 bucks. Why, yes, I, I can. <laughs> I made $100 to drag it out and play. That's cool. So uh, a, the huge light bulb goes off, and then... And then I started taking sound gigs where I was in over my head. And this is a kind of common thread for me is to just say yes and figure it out. Uh, yep. Like we need, but I think uh, a lot of successful people do that. I, what I would do is say yes to a gig and realize I only own two monitors. They want three. So I'd try to get a deposit up front for the gig. I'd buy the monitor. I'd make half as much as I was going to make on a sound gig. And I started building my, my little sound company and, I really like it. It's not playing. No, it's definitely not the same. Um, like I don't want to say thrill, but yeah, I think there's there's not an energy exchange like there is being on stage there's with a, the audience. There's some kind of energy you get at a good concert when you got a good mix and the the people are digging the band because right. you feel like you're involved in their. Uh, it's like voyeurism almost, and you you feel like you're involved in their. Uh, their pleasure right, of, of right. the gig. 
And then sometimes I just get off on like, ah, oh, that's I got a great sound and I got the vocals nice and they're giving me good stuff. So, so yeah, I, I started doing sound a lot and well, I'm coming up on almost 40 years of of doing that's concerts. crazy. It's hard I, to imagine. I, I couldn't even. I tried to estimate in the past ten years. I think I figured seventeen hundred bands in the last ten wow. years. Wow! I wish you had kept track of all that. That'd be pretty cool to see the list. Like I, I tend to be like a historian like that, and I, I write down all the gigs that I've done, and I, you know, put them on the web page. And if somebody wants to go look, they can find the history of gigs and look for the last. 14 years worth of gigs that i did that's cool because um, you don't you, you don't remember no no i've forgotten most of these gigs so if it's down there you go i don't remember playing that gig but i don't uh, remember that place yeah you know and that place is still there like yeah. <laughs> i had no idea um but yeah definitely uh i i try and do that i try keep all my old calendars just because i want to remember some of those things yeah and the memory being what it is i i probably won't remember this conversation in two weeks um i used to keep a little bit of a tra uh, little track of the gigs because I'd write down what the gig was and what I made. Then when it came to tax time, I would. But yeah, the the live sound thing's been a lot of fun. It's been a good living, and it's I've parlayed some successes into, you know, playing hopscotch and and jobs, so so to speak. Because I got like that what. Well, uh, I know you do a lot of lot of concerts in the park and city gigs and. I, uh, the the big thing that happened Festivals. somewhere around two thousand four. Uh, they were having a concert over at the Fender Center, the Fender Museum in Corona, and they said uh, we need some help. We know you got a lot of microphones, you got good ears. Can you mm -hmm. come over? So I I just got in the car come and came over, and it's a, a big concert. Who's the act? Steve Miller Band. What? So I was like. This is awesome because I, I have kind of a Steve Miller band history thing that weaves into um, into my past. So I was excited and it helped. And I got to do a, a live uh, a radio interview for Westwood One with Steve Miller. Nice. And um, about a year later, they offered me the uh, house engineer job at the center at the fender center and i spent eight years there doing wow you did eight sound, years sound for kids bands and then you know merle haggard steve miller bad company the fix you know blink 182 uh, joe walsh all those people came through so i can remember a dozen shows that you did sound on you know well we uh, lucas doing nelson stuff. uh uh i i Kind of put together that inside little nightclub thing, which yeah. is kind of a multi-purpose room. We mounted a mm -hmm. PA. We tried to make it sound good. You were one of the first bands that that came there. I had Bucksworth, and I'm I not had a lot. You. Um, and, and you've probably experienced this, where you could. I was able to parlay my the the Fender name and my job into getting these concerts in the park things. Yes. It's like, oh, you're the sound man over there, and I was, you know. I don't know if that actually made me better. It made me experienced. But I got the job at Court Street Square, did their concerts in San Bernardino for years, 40 events a year. Now, uh, did you do um, Route 66 as well? I played there and did some sound over there, but it was in the same stage that they had a concert series. Yes, at uh, Court Street. And yeah. then I did City of Riverside. I, I worked over there for six or seven years, and then I went up to Lake Arrowhead, and I've done – 
260 some shows up in Lake Arrowhead. So you can kind of like parlay these things. You've done that. I'm sure you've oh, done a gig like, hey, we did a gig over here. I opened for a Little River Band. So, right, right. Oh, well, you're, you're in. Well, and I, I definitely used the, uh, the commercial for years. Like, I don't talk about it, especially by name anymore, yeah. but I used that for years to try and get gigs. Well, that's a, that's a big that's accomplishment. Business. That's a big accomplishment. And, and it's, uh, something, I mean, you, you had a song on the Super Bowl. I mean, kind of. I mean, during yeah, the, I mean. the broadcast, I guess. If you're a Super Bowl commercial song, right. you say that's, oh, that was cool. that's my song and my voice and, and stuff on there. Yeah, you parlay you know, that. You, do, you definitely do. Anytime you open for... And we spent, when, when I was doing the Big Papa thing, we spent probably five years just building resume. We opened for anybody that was blues that would come through town. You know, whether it was Robert Cray, Johnny Winter... Um, Fabulous Thunderbirds, you know, Tommy Castro, anybody that came through, we jumped on it. Um, as, as long as the tickets weren't like incredibly expensive and we brought people, you yeah. know, we had, we had family and whatnot that would come out and friends. That's the other thing you're really good at is the, the marketing and getting people out. <sighs> well, I used to. Well, it's harder as you get older, man. It is harder because you don't have as much time, but I envy I, the kids, man, who are in like high school and, and, uh, because that, that crowd is already built in. They got nowhere else to go. Yeah. You know? Well, it's harder as you get older, too, because uh, people's lives are complicated. But I think one one thing you've always been good at is getting them out. But you can only get them out for, for so long. Yes. And if your act isn't good. Yeah. So you've, you've always had a um, – I've always appreciated this about you as you put on a show. I mean, I, I got to do something. I can't play. And I know some of that probably comes from – you know, seeing Rod Piazza, because I know I saw Rod Piazza a million times, and I'm like, man, I could steal that or do that. Mm-hmm. or uh, Oh, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> I stole oh, yeah. hand over fist what I saw him do. It was very clear. And it's, but it's funny, because I see a lot of younger bands doing very similar styles to his, and you can see them stealing his shtick, too. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, he probably stole his shtick from, right, you know, right. George Smith or yeah. whoever he, he worked with. So I, I think that's totally acceptable. Um, but, yeah, the people who know, they, they see it and they go, oh, he's walking the bar? Oh, yeah, he's a yeah, Rob Piazza yeah. fan. Um, have you ever done that? Jump up on the bar? Um, not in di- direct... Uh, like parallel to Rod Piazza. No, I haven't done that, but I did like, I always liked his thing where he would, people would leave the stage. Right. And it broke it down to something and people's focus would come in and then the band would come back. I stole that just idea. Yeah, it's so brilliant. I would do something just with uh, Albert and I on the keyboard and the vocal and then bring the band back. And it's but without sp- losing a beat. It's a like, simple concept. Yeah, but nobody does it. Like, break it down. Because you see bands, and everybody's playing all the time from the get-go, right. and it becomes like a wallpaper. Right, right. And Rod knew how to, like, draw you in, and you get tired of looking at the same people in the same positions. So mm-hmm. he that breaks that up, too. It's, it's quite... Well, I loved that they would be playing a song... And he would introduce somebody, and they would just put the instrument down. The song wouldn't stop. They yeah. would just, like, walk off. There's something about Rod where I I saw him, you know, 25 times, and the 25th time was as cool as yeah. the other time. And it wasn't 
vastly different. Yeah. He knows what he knows and he does it and, and he's the best at what he does. Um, and it's, for me, it's amazing each time. James Taylor was the same way. Did four shows with James Taylor back in 2001 yeah. or whatever. And we sat and watched all four shows and I knew his jokes because the joke was the same joke every yeah. single time <laughs> and it did not matter. It was great every single night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think when, when the, the performance is exciting, you know, having that script isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. Um, all right. So you may not remember this. Um, I don't remember the first song I learned to play, but the first song that made me excited to play, do you remember what that was? Wow. Excited to play. Or maybe the first song you learned. Like, I'm sure for me, it was something like Iron Man. You know, it's like four notes or something. That's funny, because you came from, you know, when you said you saw Kiss. And, right, you right. Know, Iron Man. When I, I roomed with my brother and in Detroit, there was like two rock stations, but maybe seven soul stations. Well, it is Detroit. Yeah. So I remember trying to... Um, boom, do, 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 oh, do. yeah. I've got sunshine. That's a good one too, because it's not that hard to do. No, but it's just. But it is hard to get the groove. Do, 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 do. You know, it's probably yeah. something like that. Uh, everybody has mentors. Did you have like somebody that was a breakthrough, or a, an older person, or somebody you looked up to that that showed you how to do things on guitar? That was maybe something you always. You man. No, you don't want to learn I, from me. I think it, I think no, I learned a lot from you, not just in music, um, but but in recording and sound. Um, I definitely consider you um, a, a mentor of sorts. Um, Jumpin' Jack Benny was a mentor oh, when it comes Jack to Benny, yeah. uh, putting on a show. I've stolen a lot of ideas from him and a lot of like show yeah. stuff from him. One of the greatest front men that I've ever worked with. Yeah, and I, I like to say he took me to blues school. Um, uh, Rod is a kind of indirect, um, uh, mentor of sorts. Um, but what about you? Who is, who is your mentor? Did you have somebody? I, I that... wish I had more actually. I wish I had, um, you know, obviously it, it'd be great to say, I wish, you know, Glenn would have taken me under <laughs> well, his wing. Well, no, Let's revisit that, you know? I don't, we know that didn't happen. Yeah. So yeah, I did but that would have been cool. I right? went up to his house a couple times and he said, bring all your songs up here. We're going to listen to them all. Right. I well, mean, that's so something. That, and he sent me to some publishers, you know, well, that's, I mean, he did, he did he in did his own way. Stuff. He did something. But as far as, um, you know, playing, I remember we, I was going to Cal state and then after Cal state, we moved into a rental house over in a scary part of uh, San Bernardino. And we had uh, three roommates and then this guy, Bruce Draper, who I used to look up to because he was like the rock star of Inland Empire, great guitar player, could play all the Zeppelin, whatever, all everything. And he was looking for a place to stay and he moved in. Huh. So he would show me stuff yeah. on the guitar and that was, that was really cool. I mean, even um, if it's the lick or something, right, that yes. you can expand on or opens your eyes to like, you know, try this and you can, you can do yeah. a cool blues thing with it or um, something. I don't know about you, but I still, I still love the guitar so much. I am not mm -hmm. tired of it. No. And here I sit with, uh, let's say many 
guitars on the wall in the studio yep. here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I definitely am a um, low-end guitar collector um, because I'm not collecting valuable instruments. Yeah, yeah. I collect sounds. And if I pick up a guitar, it's because it has a, a specific sound or feel uh, or a look, yeah. you know? Like some of them I never even play. I've got a stupid flying V over there that I had refurbished and you know brought back to life. And I use it when I need big guitars. And yeah, that's the only it. time yeah. it comes off the wall, you know. Um, but yeah, obviously I I'm the same way. It well, does, how often are you picking up a guitar, like per week? Fifteen minutes at a time here but and there. Like how many days? Like I uh, try and do at least every other day. Um, but I mean, you, you got to realize when I come home, I spend all day helping people create. All right. So when I walk in the door, my mind is like, okay, I'm not helping somebody else. I'm creating now. Okay. So whether I'm working on a podcast or a comic book or I'm writing music or I'm recording or whatever I'm doing, like I, I see four o'clock on as my chance to do what I do, is and this, I have that luxury. Uh, my dad used to say there's a scale, and all the stuff that goes into the logistics and the transportation and the carrying stuff and the hooking stuff up, the scale always has to tip towards the creativity and the creation and hmm. the fun. And when that gets off kilter, something's a little bit wrong. Yeah. And, and I've always kind of remembered that. Even when I do sound and I hate cables and carrying speakers and stuff, it still has to tip the scale or at least balance. No, I think that's the key, man. Uh, and I try and tell the kids, like, if you don't want to get into a career or a job where you go to work and you come home and you watch TV and you go to bed. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot of people's lives. And I think a lot of musicians or people in music in general go into that because they don't have that. Yeah. Like there's always an adventure on the next, you know, weekend or whatever. But I think there's a, there's a different type of person and I tend to associate and be fascinated with and have friends that are like you. They don't just play guitar. They pick up and play guitar. You're a creative person. You're writing, you know, books, you're, you're creating songs, putting out albums, uh, whatever artwork. Right. I tend to associate with that because I find myself that I'm th I'm that person also. Like, I'll, I'll go nuts. Uh, I'll jump out a window if I can't have a project on the horizon that's yes creative. Whether it's designing something, photography, uh, you know, this song I'm working on, I've, I've kind of been out of the studio a little bit, a little bit longer than I would like as mm -hmm. far as, you know, getting in there and nuts and bolts and laying down tracks. And I recently moved back into the bedroom. Talk about full circle. Like you start in the bedroom, you have a nice studio like we have here. And now I'm kind of back in the bedroom for, for various reasons. And uh, I'm, I'm hooked. Like I don't want to stop. Yeah. I mean, it, there is kind of a, a sense of addiction to it. Um, or, uh, you know, like that, that I was talking to somebody else about this. Um, if I don't play somewhere a couple times a month at least I start to go a little nuts and and the wife has several times said isn't there like a jam this weekend you can go to because she knows yeah like something is not right and it's probably because you haven't been doing any gigs 
you haven't been out in the studio, whatever the case yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Like, why don't you go write me a song? She said that a few times. I don't think it's because she wants me to write her another song because she's got like discs full of that. But I think that's her subtle way of saying, you need to go make yeah, something. You're, you're kooky right now. Yeah, you're getting a little much. Yeah, my uh, wife understands that, that I have to go but that's rare. play in the band. And um, she understands the studio. And it's not an easy thing to be the passive listener, um, significant other in a relationship with someone like us sometimes. Oh, no. I we give... can drive somebody insane. Yeah. How many times are you going to do that guitar part? <laughs> yeah, especially when the, the bedroom is right above the studio and they yeah. hear that wah, wah, like a thousand times a thousand in a row. Time, yeah. yeah, something that's that simple that you're like, no, it's the band isn't just quite it's not right. There. You're comping a vocal and right. you, you sung it five times and you're listening to five takes to figure out what's the best one. <laughs> yeah, it's a little nutty. Yeah. Um, and and that drives the, somebody nuts. So you got to have uh, your significant other has to be... Uh, has to be able to understand the art artistic part of that. Yeah. I think a lot of people look at the romanticized idea of being with a musician or an artist of any kind. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't realize most artists don't make a lot of money unless they really hustle. Yeah. And most artists are gone a lot and, um, are hard to live with, mm -hmm. especially if they're not creating their art. And I think that's, that's one of those things that if you find somebody that gets that, like that's gold. That's valuable. That's absolutely gold. And I think you and I are incredibly lucky yeah. uh, in that respect. Um, so yeah, that's definitely shout outs to, to our wives on that. Um, so you, um, you do sound. Um, do we want to talk about the day gig at all or? The day gig is related. I, I absolutely think so, but I didn't know. Like sometimes, I don't want to talk about. Work. Oh no! Like I, on my I, other podcast, we never talk about work. Oh, I like um, my work, I, so, and I think that's one of those things where it parlayed from something else into yeah. that. So what I was talking about earlier that you kind of hopscotch between things, and I've always kept my ears and eyes open, and I've always said, "Hey, if you ever need some help with that, right." So I was doing sound with the, the Fender Kids Band at, at a race, at an off-road truck race right. for Lucas Oil. And they're in Corona. And uh, so I wandered over to watch the races. The races were awesome. I didn't understand anything that was coming out of the sound system. It was a mess. Yeah. So I go up to the guys. Well, that's an afterthought, I said, right? Uh, if you ever need help, uh, I, I'm literally not even a mile mm -hmm. across the street. So... They took me up on that offer, and they said, okay, uh, the sound system's terrible. I said, yeah, you should be able to hear who's in first place. Right. Uh, and I think I can fix it. So, again, I opened my big mouth, you know, and said I could fix it. So I had to do it. And they hired me to be their sound guy for the Lucas Oil Off-Road Truck Series, which is kind of on CBS and NBC and Fox Sports. It's pretty big. Yeah. Uh, and another scary thing, like... You know, eight thousand people watching super loud trucks. Right. And I promised that they're gonna be they're gonna be able to hear it. So yeah, no pressure. So that uh, they knew that I was a studio guy because I came over and helped them design their voiceover studio. Like I drew it up. I told them what they have on the wall, what kind of microphones they should have, and eventually they came over to say, "Look, we we turn out over a hundred TV shows a year." Wow. But our editors don't know how to do audio very well. That's Only a insane. few of them. 
and they were cranking out these shows. Right. Well, I what maybe a case of like, can you do that? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, you know. And then you and figure it out. There were guys that knew how to do it to try to help people. Like, right. hey, your show's terrible. Let me massage that. Right. But they didn't really know how to work. Uh, you know, equalizers and compressors right. and all this stuff. So they picked me up one day and said, we want to hire you to teach our editors how to do audio. And eventually we want you to mix a majority of our TV shows yeah. that go on air because then it would have a consistency. And Man, talk about like starting from picking up a guitar to yeah. basically doing the audio for a TV network. And it, it was scary, too, because, I again, I said, yes, I can do that. Yeah. And, and I drove home going, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. Uh, because it was, you know, a whole different world, the, the TV show world. But I know how to mix. And yeah. mixing a truck sound with a couple announcers and a music track and somebody in the pits with a mic or a stick mic. Right. Yeah, I know what it's supposed to sound like, and I knew the compressors and everything. So it was a little adjustment period for a couple of years, but I'm mixing over 100 TV shows a year for CBS, wow. Fox, NBC, commercials. I've been out on... Uh, reality shows, talk shows. So it's 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 audio. So right. it's been my journey in audio. Yeah. But it's all connected though. It That's is, the thing. Yeah. Um and then of course there's the the possibility of um you know having to create music for these shows or there's the possibility of having to be a producer on a show or work the cameras or it, I mean there's so many other things that you could possibly go and do. And I, I've kind of gone a little sideways at lucas into these areas wow that's crazy you know they uh from just the guy who said hey you know i can help you yeah. fix that up to being like what what are some of the stuff you did at lucas well, i have done some music tracks to put in their shows that's awesome and uh it'd be overwhelming to try to do their entire needs <laughs> no that's that's a lot you know 140 shows with you know, eight or ten pieces of music in each. I'd have to start working on music now for right. the next three years. But I've done music for them. I have um, engineered some of their events and done sound for some of their bigger events. Um, yeah, I've gone. I've gone a lot of places because of Lucas. You know, travel stuff and well, done yeah. some talk show things like. I was I did the talk show and it's that's a different kind of audio than we do here in the studio where you're hiding a lavalier right, mic and right. someone and 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 doing that so I just jumped right into that and then they found out I had some photography skills which wow. isn't isn't related to music or audio well no but that goes back to where you started because your dad was a photographer yeah my uh, family is I got a whole family of photographers and graphic artists that's cool so it's Again, just parlayed into some things, and they've been uh, patient enough to let me, you know, try some things. And I've always relied on talent and sort of hard work I instead mean, of technical skills. Yeah. So you you did um, – when I met you, you were doing – or when, when we became friends, because I met you years and years ago when I was a punk-ass kid at Lear's Music – and you I were working behind that, the counter. Well, of course yeah. you don't, because I was a punk-ass kid, didn't know anything. Um, you were just that mean, tall guy that was like, get out of here, kid. Um, but when we became friends, which I don't even remember when or why we became friends. I cannot remember. Yeah. Um, you were doing the Detroit Lean Band. Oh, yeah. Um, 
which are you have a couple of really cool records that um, I listen to every year. I have it on at some point throughout that year. Um, well, that's cool. Wh- what are you doing now? I don't know if you saw. I posted one of your tracks on Facebook. I don't know. I know no, you don't do no. the Facebook thing. I I'm, I I was doing a um, quote of the day for about a year, and I did one every day, and they were like these kind of weird computer generated like nihilistic you know really dark sometimes quotes um and it was kind of a joke i stopped doing that when i hit the year mark and now i'm doing song of the day um so you were one of the songs of the day oh that's cool Um, so i forgot to tell you that oh that's that's nice but what are you doing now musically um i know you're working in at home in the studio doing some of your solo stuff yeah uh I always still write and I still do some creative stuff and I still put out a track and the, uh, kind of the environment for putting out albums. We, you know, we, you have an album mentality Yes, and that's changed to where it used to have more value. I think the, the physical product had more value, yeah. the CD, the, you well, know, the music everything is free now. Yeah. There's it's, it's not worth less, but it doesn't have value in the sense right. that you can buy it. So know? it makes it a little bit perplexing as to what to do with your creations. And I kind of got away from uh, putting out something on a regular basis. Yeah. Even though I would, I would write and do a little demo of something, partly because of work. I, you know, I got my job at Lucas, and then sometimes in the summer I work six or seven days a week doing audio. Yeah, and there wasn't much time left over. But so, you are playing live still, though. Yeah, I have uh, a little '70s trio band doing covers, and that's a blast. And we've recorded uh, songs for a little uh, five-song handout CD. And, and what's I, the name of the band? Uh, Rain Cross Drive. Okay. Based out of Riverside. All 70s uh, harmony stuff. It's fun. We're so good. It's, it's you and... Uh, uh, Mike Gagan, and Ralph Torres. Uh, they're from the Dangers. Okay. And uh, Inland Empire kind of standard guys that have been around for, for years doing music. And we've known each other for 30 plus years. So doing that and then... I kind of got fed up with not doing uh, finished uh, record quality songs. So I decided, why not just record some singles throughout the year and put them on iTunes and streaming services? And and ha- I like a goal, like we talked about earlier. I like having a target and a goal. Right. So that's what I've done with myself in the past um, six months. Get my studio in shape. Now I moved back in the bedroom for various reasons from the studio. And these songs that have been sitting there, kind of percolating on, on a back burner on low, I'm trying to bring them to life. And uh, and I'm, I'm kind of letting them be whatever they're going to be. And it's based on my skills and based on experimenting a little bit with some effects or, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily I'm going to put out a Billie Eilish uh, record, but. Well, but I think um, as the, as the industry evolves a little bit, I think um, it's, it's totally natural that some of that stuff creeps in. And still you're not, you're not going to drift uh, 
left or right, up or down, too far from from roots. Right. I mean, I like uh, where I came from and don't necessarily want to do something with all samples in a box, you know? It's still going to have kind of my thing, and I do like playing the guitar and the way I sing and the way I was brought up. All those Eagles kind of things are... They're in my DNA, so I tend to want to yeah. put harmonies on everything, yeah. even when they don't need it. It's you know? pretty hard not to when you yeah. have the, you know, you could be doing eight-part harmony. And, uh, and I'm good at it, so I, I tend to be like, oh, i got to put harmony there. Yes, yes. That's the hard thing of going back to my subtractive of like, no, leave, leave something off. You right, know? right. Like what you do and what I do, we have to try to wear a number of hats, and each each one of those hats is a vocation unto themselves. Right, right. Like, okay, you're gonna try to be the musician and play the drums. Yeah. You get to put mics on it and be an engineer. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are a number of things that you're getting into where uh, you're you're being asked to to do an excellent job on all those right well i mean we can have perspective we find a way yeah you know and i think i think for me it's it's not wanting to wait on somebody else right and i think i get the sense that you're kind of the same way it's like well screw it i'll just play the drums if i can't get those guys over here you know and then you know you evolve you learn and you you're all proud of yourself because you did a multi-track recording right right and then you kind of get over that the me 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 part of it right. and you go yeah it doesn't really sound that good <laughs> who can uh, i call so i need to either um i think people that do the home studio go through a phase to where like you you play drums and and i I call myself a drum owner, but right. I do. I sit down and hit them, and well, you know, you make I'm a solid C minus on a good day. <laughs> well, you know, but there have been worse. You get past the uh, me playing bass, me playing drums, me playing guitar, me singing, me playing keyboards, into bringing people into your projects and letting them do something. Right. And I think my projects grew. Because I'd bring someone in and say, I don't know, what do you think for the drums? Absolutely. Show me something and I'll just be an editor. Right, right. No, I think that's great. I think that's, um, for me, the key to the future of the music business is that we have to get back to a little more collaboration with people who actually play instruments, Uh, whether it becomes a digital version of it or whatever. Um, But I think that collaboration is super important. Um, because we've gone as far into ourselves at this point, yeah. recording on our iPhones as we can go. Uh, and I think the younger generation is going to figure that out. It's like, Hey, what if I worked with this guitar player or what if I worked with this bass player or this drummer? Um, I think be- they're more, I think they're more willing to do it. Yes. Than we were when we started our project studios way more open to different styles yeah. as well and like hey so and so's uh really good with the coming up with techno things or beats or something and you know and and i, I when i remember being the start of the project studio era when i was excited that i could do everything myself and then there comes a point where i realize i shouldn't do everything myself so you feel hopeful for the future of the music biz i do there's the, the product phase is interesting, but 
there's a lot of creativity going on. Sometimes we're not exposed to everything that's going on because you have to look different places nowadays. Uh, you and I grew up in the radio land where, you know, you turn on the TV and, you know, channel two, four, seven, mm-hmm. nine, eleven. You catch music stuff there and are, are on the radio, and that's yeah. not necessarily where it's. Well, today, no, where it's, it's not at from. all. And it's interesting that uh, independent artists can actually make a dent, Wing make Grammys. a living. Yeah. Make a living doing it because it used to be that you had to have a record deal and then you got yeah. kind of raped for your whatever. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, we, we have friends that are out there selling CDs off the bandstand and they have a a house and a car and and eating you know yeah now i think um it's it's a scary and an an exciting time in the business uh because never before has it been more possible to put stuff together and put stuff out and maybe even be successful whatever that means um without help right you know if you have the drive and and the I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to say yes, attitude that you can make things happen, um, you know, with a, with a little bit of work. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we probably should wrap up on that note. Um, I think, uh, we definitely could go on and do this for like four or five more hours. That's a blast. Um, but, uh, we will have you come back in. Uh, we'll get a little bit of time and, and, uh, get some updates on your, your recording and, and on uh, Ray cross drive and Lucas and every other thing that, you know, you're working on. Um, anyway, this has been a, another episode of fix it in the mix. Thanks again to Kelly McGuire for coming in and giving us a peek inside his world. Um, and by all means, if you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Facebook and for the love of all things, holy, tell a friend, share it with somebody. Fix it in the mix is recorded at Inland Blue Studios. Remember to subscribe to fix it in the mix on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by SpinWiz Comics. Please go and visit spinwizcomics.com. IB Comics, the home of great creator-driven stories for people of all ages, including Legba's Juke Joint. The first book of a nine-book series is available now and tells the story of American music from the blues to the present. The series examines the values of American society and for what we as people are willing to trade our soul. The book has been called Smart and Clever by Mark Wade of The Flash and Superman and Raw, Honest, and Profoundly Human by Stephen Frank, the creator of Silver and the animator on The Iron Giant. The book is available now at www.ibcomics.com. Ivy Comics, the home of great stories.